Welcome to another episode of the Tom Shimmer Podcast. Happy Thanksgiving, everyone. Yes, you heard me correctly. Monday, October 11th is Thanksgiving Day here in Canada. Or as, of course, some like to refer to, it's Canadian Thanksgiving. It's a celebration of the harvest and all of the blessings from the previous year. And while it might be easy to assume that Canada, of course, being the younger nation, uh, copied the concept of Thanksgiving from the United States, the history is a little bit more complicated. Some historians suggest that Canadian Thanksgiving dates back to 1578 after Martin Frobisher's third voyage to Canada. Now, it is alleged that he had lost one of his ships along the way and had hosted a big celebration as a token of thanks to the people of Nunavut uh, for providing safe passage. And of course, that took place many years before uh, the first ever sort of U.S. Thanksgiving around 1621. Some say the idea of Thanksgiving came from the French settlers in Canada in the early 17th century who wanted to celebrate their harvest in what was then known as New France. A national holiday was formalized in Canada uh, not until 1879, and even the date wasn't fixed until 1957, when the government of Canada officially named the second Monday of October as Thanksgiving Day. Now, of course, in modern times, the history of Thanksgiving in the context of settlers and the indigenous experience has rightly come under a lot of scrutiny. So we seem to have transitioned now into simply being a day of of giving thanks, spending time with family and friends, and a chance to just sort of count our blessings, if you will. So with that, I want to say thanks to you, listeners, again this week for listening in. And as always, a big welcome to any new listeners joining in for the first time. Your listening and following the podcast, of course, is always appreciated. And if you enjoy the podcast, please spread the word on social media or with your friends and colleagues. I'd really appreciate that. Now, today, my guest is my friend and colleague, Luis Cruz. Luis and I explore what it means to fulfill society's new, more modern definition of all, as in all means all. And in Assessment Corner this week, I want to talk briefly about rubrics and criteria, not so much about the content and structure, but about the creation of rubrics themselves and why we have to stop overthinking them. So that's today's plan. Let's get to it. The interview with Luis Cruz is coming up, but first, don't at me. But I want to open this week with a quick story from last week about how the small things in life, even if they're manufactured, can make a big difference in how we're feeling. Now, last week I was in Moline, Illinois, which is part of the Quad Cities area, right? You've got Davenport and Bettendorf in southeastern Iowa. You've got Rock Island and Moline in northwestern Illinois. That's the Quad Cities. So I was actually working in Geneseo, Illinois, which is about 30 minutes east of Moline. I was there for two days, Thursday and Friday. Thursday was small group coaching sessions all day, and Friday was a full district-wide presentation for all of their K-12 teachers. Okay, so we we start at 7.30 on Friday morning. So I leave my hotel probably around 20 minutes after 6. I want to stop at Starbucks, grab a coffee, and then you've got the 30-minute drive. I want to arrive by 7 so I can set up, right? We start at 7.30. Usually a half an hour before uh, the presentation starts is enough time to get everything set up. All right, so I go through the drive-thru and I order my coffee. Venti dark roast, just black. No cream, no sugar, just the hard stuff. Give it to me and let's get on with our day. So I pull up to the window... And the woman at the window scans my Starbucks app, hands me my coffee, and as I go to put the cup in my cup holder of my rental car, I notice something written on the lid. So I take a quick moment to read it, and it says, shine bright like a diamond. 
It's written in black Sharpie on the, the lid of my coffee cup. Now, obviously, this is in reference to the lyrics of the Rihanna song, right? Diamonds. I quickly glance into the window of the Starbucks, and I see a different woman, not the woman at the window, but the woman behind her, inside the Starbucks, Sharpie in hand, writing something on the next coffee order. Hmm, I thought. She's probably writing shine bright like a diamond on the next coffee cup as well. So clearly the message wasn't a personal message for me, right? As if it would be. So off I drive to Geneseo, 30 minutes, periodically taking sips of my coffee. Each time I took a sip of my coffee, I read, shine bright like a diamond. 30 minutes, periodically, shine bright like a diamond. Is that a little corny? Well, sure, maybe you could choose to look at it that way. After all, she probably wrote that on every cup, though she'd have to have some backup quotes, right? Because if a order had more than one coffee, so can you imagine four coffees in your to-go tray, if each of them had the same quote on them, lose its impact a little bit. But that was irrelevant to me. I had one cup, shine bright like a diamond. Now, as generic as that exercise might sound or appear, I have to tell you, it worked. Many of you likely recall my opening from a few weeks ago about the present as epilogue, where I shared with you my morning routine about writing about the day ahead, a kind of positive affirmation where I would write about the day ahead in past tense as if the day had already occurred, or I would just write some past tense positive message to myself that asserted that the thing or experience I wanted to have happen had already happened. I do this to immediately change my mindset because I know what I think about directly and immediately impacts how I feel, that my emotions are the residual effect of what I've been predominantly thinking. So in order to exercise some influence over what I'm feeling, I start my day with a positive mindset, as positive as possible. The positive mindset for me brings positive energy into the day ahead. Okay, so back to Friday. I spent 30 minutes reading Shine Bright Like a Diamond on my coffee lid. What do you think my mindset was as I walked into the Geneseo Middle School gym to present to the K-12 teachers? As generic and manufactured as it was, having the words shine bright like a diamond, those words written on my coffee cup, they kept running through my head all day long. You better believe it impacted me. Now, I know that authentic gestures are likely more meaningful, and I'm not advocating that we walk around doing any sort of phony gestures, right? What that barista did was not phony, though, in my mind. She didn't have to do that. She could have easily prepared my coffee, handed it to her colleague at the window, and gone about her next order of business. But you see, it's not the gesture itself for me. It's the time she took to do it. That means something. It's Starbucks on a Friday morning, and even in a smaller city or town, there is a lineup, so orders come fast and furious, right? She took the time. Think about birthday wishes on Facebook. We all know that 90 to 95% of the people wishing you a happy birthday on Facebook don't have your birthday set to memory. They open up Facebook, they see the notification, and they send you a quick message. You know what? I don't care. I still feel like a rock star on that day, and it feels good that people have taken the time to say happy birthday, even if they only type HBD. I mean, that one always cracks me up a little bit, right? I'm so busy, I only have time to type three letters. Uh, typing two words is still too much, but still, it feels good. Now, you can choose to think it manufactured 
or cheesy, I choose otherwise. Now for me, the fact that anyone makes any kind of gesture like this, it means something. I appreciate it because in the end, it actually works. I want it to shine bright for my audience on Friday. And not that I don't want to do that or think that during other workshops, but in my head, as I was facilitating the workshop, I kept thinking to myself, shine bright like a diamond. I may or may not have thrown in a little Rihanna accent every once in a while in my head just just for effect a few times. That cup sat on the front table next to my laptop for the first 90 minutes of the workshop, right up until the morning break. Shine bright like a diamond. The gesture was simple and maybe contrived, but the gesture was also thoughtful and impactful. It reminded me that actually impacting others is what really matters. Not every gesture has to be monumental. Just do it. It reminded me that the simplest things can have the biggest impact. It reminded me that, in fact, it is the thought that counts. That just taking a few seconds to positively impact my day was all I needed that morning. Now, the barista wouldn't have had any idea who I was or whether the message was going to be well-received. And I know that if I were in a different headspace or maybe headed to the hospital to visit a family member or something serious was happening in my life, that that gesture might have had zero impact. I get that. You know, when life gets serious, we're not just one song lyric on a coffee lid away from a 180-degree reversal. I get that. The barista couldn't have known that one way or the other. But what matters is we make the effort. What matters are the little things, the gestures the things we do to make someone else's day. So I have two challenges for you this week. First, find a small, subtle way to positively impact someone else's day this week. Maybe you have a habit of doing this anyway. Maybe that's just who you are. And if you do, try something new or atypical. A note, a gesture, something. Something that doesn't take a lot of money or time. Just a way to impact in a small way, or inspire someone, or find a way to ensure that that person knows that they're important to you. Help them have an extra special day. That's challenge number one. And challenge number two, well, I know you do this every week. This week, I want you to do this extra. Whatever your normal levels are, this week, do it more. For your students this week, challenge number two, I want you to shine bright like a diamond. This podcast is a proud member of the Teach Better Podcast Network. Better today, better tomorrow, and the podcast to get you there. You can find out more at teachbetter.com slash podcast. Now let's get back to the episode. Here today for the interview is my friend and fellow Solution Tree colleague, Luis Cruz. Uh, Luis has been a public school educator for over 30 years and has served students and families in elementary school, middle school, and high school, both as a teacher and a school administrator. And today, Luis is a consultant and an author who addresses issues related to equity, to English language learners, transformational leadership, and redesigning school systems for the potential to move more effectively to address our new definition of what we mean when we say all. So Luis, I wanna welcome you to the podcast today. Uh, buenos dias. Happy to be with you, Tom. Thank you for the invitation. I'm honored, honestly. Thank you. It is It is so great to have you here. Um, 
you know, not only do I value our connection as friends, uh, but I just have the utmost respect for you and your work um, and all of the incredible inspiration that you bring to teachers and educators uh, literally around the world. And I know you're going to bring that uh, today in the in the podcast as well. No pressure. Right. Uh, so 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 let's let's uh, that's right. Let's let's jump right into it. And before we dig into the substance uh, and the content of our conversation today, let's let's start with you and the arc of your career. Um, walk us through the journey and and maybe, you know, those impact points along the journey that led you to becoming this author, this speaker, this globally recognized leader and expert in so many areas, equity, multilingual learners, RTI, um, so many areas. What Tell us about the journey, Luis. What, what, what's the arc of, of, your, of your story? Yeah, thank you. Um, you know, it's funny when you say that, I, I instantly reflect back on a couple of things that happened in my life that I think led me to be able to do this amazing work and love doing it, right? I think the first is that growing up, my parents are immigrants from Ecuador. They came here to the United States. My grandfather was the first to come here. And then my the rest of my family came. I was actually born here in Los Angeles, California, uh, first generation from the Cruz family. But growing up, the one thing that I think had a significant impact in my life was the fact that my parents, unlike most parents during the time that were telling their kids to forget about Spanish and embrace English because they were concerned that their kids would not learn English enough, so it's better to let go of one language and learn this new language, my parents were very different. They wanted me to embrace the keeping of Spanish while learning English. And I had a grandfather who lived down the street from me. We called him Tito because I couldn't say abuelito. So grandfather in Spanish. So I said Tito. And Tito every afternoon would have me go to his home. I remember being maybe five, six and running down there. And he would teach me Spanish from an actual book that he had ordered from Ecuador. And so he would teach me Spanish so that over time, my Spanish wouldn't be sort of um, disappearing, if you will. It wouldn't disappear. It would remain as part of who I was. And so that was a significant part of my life because my first teacher, honestly, was my grandfather who would take the time, 45 minutes, to literally have me read and write in Spanish because he did not want me to forget Spanish. Flash forward, I'm 18 years old, graduated from high school. I'm working at a supermarket called Lucky's, and I'm actually a courtesy clerk, have two goals in life. I always share this story, to lower my car and to purchase a pullout stereo. That's all I wanted. Woman walks into the store, asks me to um, help put her groceries in the trunk of her car, and she says to me, mijo, me puedes ayudar con mis bolsas, por favor? Can you please help me with my groceries? And I responded in Spanish. She hears me speak Spanish and she smiles and says, you speak Spanish very well. Would you be interested in working for our local school district as a bilingual teacher's aide? And I looked at her and said, thank you, but I'm a courtesy clerk. I'm making a fat 425 an hour. You know, I'm, I'm good. And then she says to me, the words that I often say change my life. She says, we pay $10 an hour. And so I thought to myself, who in their right minds would pay someone $10 an hour to work with kids? How hard could that be? Well, little did I know that within two weeks of the job, I fell in love with something called first graders and they were amazing. And I found myself no longer wanting to lower my car. I just wanted them to do well. So that was a significant um, episode in my life. And the third was in college, 
um, a professor, Dr. Isaac Cardenas, the uh, department chair for the Chicano Studies Program, asked me if I would speak to incoming high school students about my journey and how I got to the university. And I thought to myself, speaking in public, my God, that's frightening. How many, how many high school kids were going to be there? And he said, something like 20. I said, 20, that's a lot of kids. He says, just share your story, Luis. It'll, 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 well, long story short, 300 of them showed up. And I was on this stage trembling about speaking to them in public. But as I began to share my story, they started laughing. They started really sort of embracing my journey. And so that was my first introduction to public speaking, something that I do now for a living. When I asked the professor why he chose me, he said, because I knew you could do this. You just, you're the only one that didn't know you could do this. And so I think that was how I was introduced to the work I do today. So a combination of those three episodes in my life, I think are what led me to where I am today. It's interesting, those formative years, right? The, yeah. the, the, the impact that just those moments can have on us, uh, they stick with us and they and they are always in the backdrop of everything we do. I'm sure still to this day, as you've just told those stories, those memories are are fresh in your mind. And it probably think of them every time you get in front of an audience and you, you are presenting in front of hundreds, if not thousands of people, uh, thinking about that first time you were asked to do the presentation in, in front of 300 uh, students where you thought it was going to be 20. Um, yes. That's a, that's a great story. Yeah. Um, yeah. So, you know, you talk about this new sort of focus of, of what we mean when we say all, you know, for years, you know, so many of us have asserted this notion that all means all, and it's almost at risk of becoming a cliche when we say all means all, but we authentically mean that, that our mission is to serve all learners. And that, of course, is still applicable today. That that hasn't changed. But as I mentioned in the intro, and I just mentioned a moment ago, you talk a lot about society's new definition of all. So for those maybe not familiar with what you mean by that, what what is that new definition of all? And, and maybe contrast that with the previous definition. Yeah, so I think that sometimes because we're so wrapped up in the ins and outs of daily life at a school in a classroom, we forget context, right? And so what I have found is that we have to remind our hardworking educators that schools do not exist in a vacuum. In other words, we are a result of things that happen outside of schools, correct? And so when things outside of schools happen, politics, technological advances, um, economy, it affects directly what happens in schools. And so I often ask audiences, I play a game of, I play a game of, of uh, Jeopardy with them, and I ask them to identify, Jeopardy style, who the father of the American public school system is. And you'll be surprised that many cannot, right? But once in a while, some people will say Horace Mann. They'll nail it, right? Because Horace Mann, historically, is considered the father of the American public school system. And so this is the question I pose. Did Horace Mann create a system that is in line with what we have today in our schools. And then I say it's a new definition of all because he didn't write a chapter called for the English learners, here's what we'll do. For the children with IEPs, this is what we'll do. For the children who come from poverty, this is what we'll do. For students of color, this is what we'll do. So the bottom line is that the definition of all back in 1830 was not the definition of all we have today. Right. If you are not a white male who owned land, you are not part of the all. 
So understanding that the system that we have was never created for the intentionality of the all we have today, which are all those different kinds of people that I mentioned, I think helps people understand that whether we believe it or not, we're in the, in the business of redesigning a system that was never intended for the definition of all today in 2021, right? And so historically, I think we need to look at that. And should we be grateful to have an American public school system? Absolutely. Should we be grateful that Horace Mann and others formed what is now our American public school system? Absolutely. But much of the way it happens with our phones, we need a serious update, right? Because the iPhone 2000, you know, what, iPhone 4 or 5 wouldn't work today as well as we would want it to work. Well, the same thing is true about our educational system and the fact that Bottom line, we have a new definition of all. That's such an interesting tension we have with the past, right? There are so many, uh, you know, the irony of we have a public school system created to to be the great equalizer, to provide equal opportunity, as long as you're a white male. And and that's that's the sort of dichotomy or the irony of, of the situation. And now we get into, you know, our, our more modern definition and all seems to keep expanding in terms of our understanding as we modernize conversations around gender, as we modernize conversations around, you know, uh, the, 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 the acute, uh, impact of immigrants and, and situations at the border. Uh, we just, the, the expanded, uh, notion of all, and, and how, how do you see, like, how do we navigate that? How do we, how do we begin to keep an, you know, continue to have an understanding of what that means when it just seems like the all means all keeps expanding and keeps challenging us? What are some of the core fundamentals maybe that we just have to realize or keep in mind as we think about that expansive definition of all? You know, it's funny because I have found myself lately reminding um, educators that I have the honor of, of working with Two things. One, that we are professional educators, right? You would think, well, that's a given, but we let's be clear. We are not amateur educators. We are professional educators, meaning that we have a skill set that regular people don't have when it comes to learning, right? And producing learning in others, right? And the second thing that I have to remind people of is that we're public school educators, meaning our job is to take in whoever is part of that public, right? I often joke that private school teachers, um, as hard as I'm sure they work, cannot compare themselves to public school teachers. Now, mind you, I attended uh, private Catholic school growing up. And I often tell the story of how ninth grade school year, a kid in my class lights up a joint and we're all looking at him like this guy's being a rebel. And all I remember is a nun walking in and saying, you come with me. And then I say, I haven't seen that guy in 32 years after that incident, right? Because see, in a private school setting, we get to sort of weed out whoever's not gonna make it. But as public school educators, we take them all. And in my days as the high school principal, I would have in the same room, the kid that was dying to get into Harvard, but came from poverty, the kid who just immigrated here from El Salvador, and then I had the grandchild of the grandfather who started the local gang in the community. And I had to figure out, along with our faculty and staff, how we were going to give them each the opportunity to flourish in life. 
And that's what makes us unique. So I think we need to remind ourselves that when we signed up to become public school professional educators, we were going to make sure that all kids who showed up at our doorstep, documented, undocumented, English, no English, were going to get the best from our professional skill set designed to produce learning for this new definition of all. I, I, I love that reference to professional because so often in my work, when we talk about assessment, we talk about using our professional judgment. And that is true, that we have a skill set and an expertise. And, and folks often talk about, oh, Tom, that's so subjective. Well, subjectivity is taking your research papers to a construction site and asking the carpenters to sort through them. That's that's subjective. What we use is professional judgment. And I think your emphasis on that professional is such a such an important reminder for all of us. And and I can't I can't go on without mentioning your reference to um, weeding out the. Uh, uh, I don't know if that pun was intended or unintended, but uh, <laughs> I, I I couldn't let it go. I, it was just it was like wow, that was a, a great point. We weed them out in in more yeah. ways than one for sure. So yeah. let's I haven't talk about, seen that guy since freshman year. So. Since freshman year, right? Uh, so let's talk about leadership because we know leadership matters, right? And right. Uh, and we can all say that leadership matters. But when it comes to this expansive definition of all meaning all, uh, and we think about that paradigm, what are some specific things that leaders, school district or school or district leaders can do to really sort of energize or re-energize uh, their colleagues around this renewed mission of that expansive definition of all? What are some of the things that leaders can specifically do? Yeah, and, and here's where I think we now need to be a little bit more specific about the kind of leadership we need, because if schools do not exist in a vacuum, then we know that based on the norms that we see in society making their way into schools, it's going to require a specific kind of leadership. There was a time when schools just required managers. In fact, there's a classic book that we study in administrative credential programs called you know, Managers of Virtue, because the world was one in such where in businesses, managers were needed. So the thought was schools also need managers, right? Well, it's clear today that if we're really going to redesign the system for the new definition of all, we need a specific kind of leadership, not just leadership in its generic form. And so the kind of leadership that both Dr. Anthony Mohammed and I are very passionate about and we write about is transformational leadership, right? An understanding that what we're basically saying is change is going to be required and we get it. Change is very uncomfortable for the adults that comprise schools, not so much the children, but definitely the adults. And so this, this kind of leadership that we have found called transformational leadership is going to allow us to not only embrace change, but to make sure that the enthusiasm for change spreads from leaders to those that are first followers. And we're going to increase things like motivation, morale, but most important performance, right? So here's what we're finding. It's silly to think that because we have a new set of knowledge that educators are simply going to run with it. The truth of the matter is that change is very difficult in our profession because we've been conditioned to believe that the way we experienced it 30 years back might be the way that these kids need to experience it, right? But when we leave transformational leadership out of the equation, we leave out the vehicle that drives the changes that are necessary for us to redesign this system. So it's a conversation that is very important and one that can no longer be synonymous with admin. 
So when I go to a school and I say, talk to me about leadership, educators are quick to point out who the administrators are. But what I often say is we can no longer associate leadership with only admin. Why don't we have in that same description or identification teacher leaders, uh, classified leaders? Because what I found in my experience is that if teachers are not part of that leadership, if classified staff is not part of the leadership, along with admin, then what you end up creating is a fad, not a movement, right? And so as long as those principles are there, we'll continue doing this work. But the moment they leave, we're back down to square zero. So it's in a very, it's an essential part of the, the change that we're seeking. When you talk about transformational leadership, are there some key elements that um, are important for administrators or leaders? We expand this definition of leader. We try to be inclusive with leadership. And of course, there are certain things about a title that go along with responsibilities and decision-making, et cetera, but trying to expand that view, what are some of the specifics around that transformation? What are some mindsets, specific practices, or systems or structures that, that can be put in place to sustain some of those, those expansive views of what, what leadership means? Yeah, I think there's a couple. I mean, uh, one I mentioned, right? It can no longer be synonymous with only admin. The second is that it's not a I, it's a we. In other words, what team is going to make the change happen that we need? Three, it deals directly with change. So transformational leadership is not about managing, it's not about maintaining, it's actually designed to help change particular aspects of a system, which we know are policies, practices, procedures, but most importantly, people's mindsets, right? So here's where Carol Dweck's room, uh, work comes into play because transformational leadership is designed to change mindsets so that the other aspects of a system, policies, practices, procedures change. Those things don't change unless we have the right mindset at a school. So this whole notion of moving from a fixed to a growth mindset is what transformational leadership helps us develop in our faculty and staff. I often say there are no evil people in our schools. No one wakes up in the morning and writes down on their things to do list. Today, I will screw over as many kids as I can. That would be evil. But we do have people that are very fixed minded about the possibility that a system can help our new definition of all, all learn at high levels. So transformational leadership is absolutely designed to be able to accomplish that. And it's something that we need to now begin to embrace in schools and districts throughout our country. And we know that leadership is not just a clinical exercise. We also know there's an emotional side to change. So, so tips for managing that from a, from a school leader's perspective, even though we have this expansive definition of leadership, when you think about principals or you think about superintendents or district leaders, what are some things they can think about also when it comes to that emotional side of change where teachers might be reluctant to let go of past practice and it's more of an emotional connection than it is a, a clinical one? Thoughts? Yeah. In in our work, um, in 2019, I had the honor of co-authoring a book with um, Dr. Anthony Muhammad, who, as you know, is a giant in our profession. And it was such an honor because we really were able to dive into his original work found in uh, Transforming School Culture. And what we found is that there are rational reasons why people would resist change, whether that be a change in instructional practice, use of assessments, grading practices, which obviously you've done an amazing job of writing about and, and, and teaching us all about. But here's the deal. When people don't, here's what we found. 
people will rationally resist when they don't understand why something needs to change. In other words, if we as leaders, and I'm not just talking about admin, are not using data to persuade, if we're not giving people a sense of urgency as to why something must change, they're not going to want to change. So the first emotional response to resistance to change is, I don't understand why something has to change. You're asking me to change, but I don't understand why. That's going to be the first. The second is when people don't trust those advocating for the change. In other words, you just got here as the new principal. We've had four principals in the last seven years. Why should we trust you? So it's got to be a combination of three things that creates trust based on our research, right? It's got to be empathy, which is not synonymous with sympathy, but it's got to be empathy, credibility, and reliability all coming together to create a trustworthy relationship between a team of people, not just admin, advocating for these changes. And then third, it's got to be, we're going to show you how. We might take small steps to get there. We're not just going to tell you in one quick, you know, student-free day how to do this and then let you go and expect you to be able to do it. We're going to invite you to problem solve with us. We're going to invite you to figure this out with us. Because if we don't invite you, then we're building the fence all by ourselves. You know, I often say people are less likely to tear down a fence they, they help build. So we're going to learn the how by helping by reaching out to you and together we're gonna to figure out how best to do this. We found that when faculty and staff members who come into our profession, let's be reminded with the moral imperative to wanna to help kids, but when they're, fee when they're fed the why, who, and how of this work, of this change that we're advocating, they become promoters of the change versus resistors of the change. Now, there is irrational people in our schools. Let's not pretend. There are people that will always be, unfortunately, affected by the fixed-mindedness that they have acquired over the years. And it's funny, in Texas, they call these people cave people, colleagues against virtually everything. So the funny thing is that that term is very true in schools. And this is where we now need to no longer support, but we need to hold people accountable. We need to be able to say in a very tactful and professional manner, we're not asking you if you'd like to change, we're expecting it. So help us understand what you need because you not doing this work, to echo the words of Rick DeFore, is aligned with malpractice and our kids don't deserve malpractice because these are proven research ways that we can improve our schools so that all kids can learn at high levels, all being our new definition of all. So in a nutshell, transformational leadership, we say it this way, the golden rule of transformational leadership is support must precede accountability. Support is the investment you make in your faculty and staff, why, who, and how, and uh, um, accountability is you seeking a return on that investment. We find that most schools do a really good job of supporting, but not a very good job of seeking a return on their investment. And it's going to take a combination of both those things to make the changes that we want to, to see happen in our schools actually happen.
Yeah, the, the compelling case for why change has to occur. So many schools and leaders skip that step of, of really articulating why the change is so necessary in their context. And therefore, it, it becomes something that's almost inarguable. You say, here's the research. Here's what tells us is the most favorable practice. This is something that we expect. You're going to be supported as we move through the, the journey, but this is something that we're headed toward. Um, I want to pivot here a little bit and have you connect some dots because I think sometimes educators look at so many things we do mistakenly, and they view so many actions and efforts as separate silos, or they inter- they think of them as uh, you know one more thing we have to implement, right? So in the service of efficiency, you know, without compromising effectiveness, can you connect some dots here uh, that might help people sort of see how ideas are connected? Um, This new definition of all, uh, the PLC at work model, and the implementation of an RTI continuum. What are, instead of looking at, oh, now we have to introduce RTI, or now we're a PLC at work and we've got collaborative teams, or now we have to, all means all. Those three are not separate silos. They are really connected. Connect those dots for us. Yeah, no, I'd love to, because I think that's often how people who aren't able to connect the dots see it as all these things that we got to do when we don't have time for, and we're in the middle of a pandemic, right? So here's the way I like to frame it. Redesigning a system for a new definition of all is synonymous with the work that is aligned with becoming more equitable, right? So there's a, there's, 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 when we talk about redesigning our system for all, we're talking about equity work. Now, the vehicle, the way that we redesign the system is by moving from a traditional school system to one that functions as a professional learning community, right? So when we become a professional learning community, what happens is we redesign our policies, our practices, our procedures, and our mindsets to be able to do this work. So let's look at it this way. Professional learning communities is what our schools and districts need to become in order for us to successfully create equitable schools that now have redesigned our systems so that all students can learn at high levels. Within the realm of a professional learning community, there's a strand called RTI. Some people know it as response to intervention. I like to view it as responsible teachers intervening. So within this scope of becoming a professional learning community, the educators come together and create, if you will, safety nets all over the school. Like when we see trapeze artists at a circus, they never fall to their death because there's like seven nets that will catch them in case they fall. So the RTI piece of this work or the RTI at work piece of this work is us now creating in our newly created professional learning community, these safety nets that will catch the kid that uh, comes from a dysfunctional home, which w- that will catch the kid who comes from a, a Spanish speaking or Mandarin or Arabic speaking only family, will catch the kid who didn't have firm foundational arithmetic skills, but is now expected to learn algebra one, geometry, algebra two moving forward. We create these nets called RTI nets that catch any kid and does not allow any kid to fall through the cracks. This happens within the realm of a professional learning community. It's a strand of a professional learning community. And when we become a professional learning community, we have now redesigned a traditional school system to one that functions as a professional learning community, ensuring all kids learn at high levels. 
Yeah, and that collective teacher efficacy that we often talk about that that emerges, our belief in our ability to make a difference for all learners. Right. And if the PLC for me, if the PLC you know model is the vehicle, then for me, right. assessment is the engine. It's the, right. the information that That's we right. gather that allows us to make the decisions. I mean, you look at the four guiding questions. The first two are assessment design questions. What do right. kids to know? And then how will we know right. that they've learned it? And then the last two are the responding to assessment evidence questions. And I think that rather than seeing all of this as a you know separate silos, oh, now we have to talk about assessment, we really can do an act, you know, be active. I know you are, I am very active in making sure people understand that they all feed one another. They are all part of a singular focus on creating that equity that we all seek. Why, you know, obviously part of the PLC process is, is uh, the, the heart of it is the, the work of collaborative teams learning together as professionals. Why do you think so many, uh, you know, educators resist collaborative opportunities? You know, is this, is it that their past experience has been poor, uh, counterproductive? Is that they haven't been shown how to do it? Is that they just want to be left alone? What do you, what do you think, is at I know I know I can't cast them as a monolith, but what, when you think about the resistance to collaboration, and and where might the majority fall? Where where's your experience told you that most people? Why are most who are resistant to to collaborative efforts? Where does that fall for you? You know, it's funny because I think it's a combination of some of those things you mentioned. Number one, let's be real. Thirty years ago, when I entered the profession, collaboration was not the norm. Yeah. The norm was. We're handing you the uh, math guide, the language arts guide, the science guide, the teacher edition, and now you go into your classroom and you give it your best, right? This idea of coming together with other colleagues who teach the same grade or course and digging into the data, I often refer to it as getting naked with the data. Yeah, I'm not getting naked with anybody because that's just not the way we do business around here, right? So, right. So, part of it is it's not because it's not something that was the norm when many of us who are still in schools first entered the profession. The second thing is, I think sometimes we equate what must happen during collaboration, which you know is looking at assessments, common assessments specifically and having rich discussions around which of your kids got it, which of your kids didn't, is often viewed as a competitive sort of sort of thing, right? Where if I reveal to my colleagues that only 20% of my kids learned what we all said they needed to learn while everyone else is at 80, 85, they're gonna frown on me. They're gonna look at me as less than, and I don't want to, once again, get naked with my data if it's gonna reveal that I have some things that I need to work on. They're going to see me as weak. And so we're going to have to change the narrative and, and, and the understanding. I've gone to some places where that process is evaluative, right? And so who would want to get, who would want to be evaluated as they're getting naked with their data, right? That just wouldn't, wouldn't be right. So I think it's a combination of things. And I think it's going to be up to strong transformational leadership to really create a new narrative that says, if you're gonna be a very effective educator in a public school professional setting, then you're gonna to have to learn how to collectively create the kind of synergy needed to become better at what we do via the help and the advice and the data that we see around us. And until that becomes the norm, right? Because that's what happens in a professional learning community. 
people are going to continue to see this as evaluative versus a necessary act that is going to help ensure that all of our kids learn at high levels. Yeah, the, the vulnerability of being in a collaborative team without the right structures and protocols around it. And you spoke earlier about trust and how important trust is, starting with administration and creating a context where you're not being judged, but the effort here, I think sometimes the word, you know, the, the acronym PLC is thrown around and people forget what it actually means. It's a community of professionals who learn together. And part of that learning is being vulnerable. But but I understand folks who are hesitant because of the atmosphere that's created around how that data is misused, common assessments. And, and you're right about the competitiveness amongst teachers as well, where, you know, I look vulnerable in front of my colleagues. So it's, it's, a, re, it's a really complicated issue. And I know we can't cast them, like I said earlier, as a monolith, but we know that there's just so much resistance to collaboration. And yet, I know you know this, and I've seen it too, once people settle into the collaborative team and start to experience what it's like to not have to do this work to, uh, alone, but to do it together, it's an incredible- It's uh, liberating. For them. It's liberating, liberating for them. It's funny Absolutely. because when I was the, the high school principal, we were really struggling with this whole vulnerability piece. And I knew that mm -hmm. the only way that I can, I can promote the need for, for vulnerability, if you will, was for me to be vulnerable. So yeah. I actually asked our faculty and staff to evaluate my performance as principal twice a year to give me feedback on whether or not I was performing at a level that the research said effective principals um, uh, performed at and whether or not they thought I was meeting that. So in other words, in other words, it, it, in order for our faculty and staff to embrace getting naked with their data, I had to get naked with the faculty and staff. Right, right. right. <laughs> so, and, and mind you, that mine was somewhat evaluative because they were giving me feedback on, am I living truth to power when it comes to being an effective principal based on all this research that is out there on what effective principals do? And it helped me become a better principal. But many people told me um, as I ended my years at the high school, that it was that move that I put myself out there that allowed them to say, well, look, if Luis is putting himself out there with 140 staff, then the very least I can do is put myself out there with my biology team. Right. And so sometimes we have to make sure that we don't just talk the talk, but we walk it, right? Yeah, you modeled that vulnerability. And like you say, that just shows and, and gives that kind of sponsorship to the idea of, of uh, ex exposing yourself to those those opportunities for feedback and again, makes us vulnerable, but it also shows, I think vulnerability ultimately is a sign of strength and our ability to, to open ourselves up to that. Now, before we finish up today, Luis, um, I wanna ask you about specifically about English language learners. Um, you know, as we sit here today in 2021, um, I wanna ask you sort of a two-part question. You know, what aspects um, about how we support ELs and how we, how we serve them continue to have you frustrated and also on the other side of that, what are some things that you look at now in terms of how we serve ELs in 2021 that have you mo feeling most optimistic? So let's let's start with the frustration so we can end on the optimistic side. So what has you feeling frustrated ab about how ELs continue to be served here in 2021? And then let's flip and talk about the optimistic side. Oh man, the frustration is, is twofold, right? The frustration is one, if schools do not exist in a vacuum, and today we function within the context of a global economy, what better asset to have in schools than kids who can walk out potentially multilingual, right? Yeah. 
to view these children as a deficit instead of an asset is just commonsensically wrong, ethically wrong in so many ways. Because if these children are able to maintain the language that they come in with, which also includes culture, right, and they're able to, at the same time, develop and own a new language and new culture, that's an asset. My daughter graduated from her nursing program and was told upon graduation that it would be a while before she got a job. The minute they found out that she spoke Spanish and English, she was moved to the front of the line and was one of the first in her class to be placed at a hospital, working, doing what she loved. So the first frustration comes from the fact that the system and the people within the system continue to view these kids as a deficit versus an asset. The second frustration is that we have more than enough research on what we need to do in schools. You know, I'm, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to paraphrase um, Ron Edmonds' words about we know, we know all we need in order to make these, this happen. Whether people not want to implement it is a whole different discussion, right? He said it much more eloquently than me, but I think you get the gist. Yeah. We know how second language acquisition works. We know how to promote, promote bilingualism. It's whether or not we're willing to do what we know in the profession that frustrates me because I still go to schools that are still after decades and decades of research on what must be done, not doing the right work because it's just another thing we have to do. And meanwhile, kids' lives are at stake. So those are the frustrations, right? Yeah. Yeah. Things that I'm, I'm happy about is I'm beginning to see schools really, really sort of demonstrate um, this amazingness, right? Uh, a colleague of ours, Rosa Isaiah, who is doing some amazing work um, as, uh, I think, a director today in the Norwalk La Mirada School District, came from a school where her kids, mostly English learners, mostly kids um, from poverty, flourished. She figured out, hey, this is how we did it. We need you to now replicate what we did, right? I've done work in Pasco School District near Washington. They have figured it out. There's a school um, that in, in the Central Valley here in California that, that is doing amazing work. Uh, Delano High School proving that their graduation rate is almost 98%. Their EL graduation is at about 96, 97%. They've just about eliminated the opportunity gap that exists there. So right. the good thing is that we know what that looks like. In fact, Margarita Calderon and I right now are writing a book on the will and skill part of how we make sure EL kids learn. So we're hopeful that over time, more people will just open up the gift that they have and the research that's been conducted and actually use that gift to help kids learn at higher levels, especially those learning English as an additional language. Your point about multilingual adults and, and folks in our society is one I'd not really thought of in that manner before. The idea that in any other aspect of society being multilingual is such an advantage and is such a blessing to those who are in a foreign country, uh, it, it, especially in a hospital or any other situation. When I work with schools overseas, uh, the students who are in those schools are often multilingual, uh, not just two languages, but more because of their traveling around. And as you look at the larger picture, and this is going to be my own commentary, um, I, I think I'm right about this. It's hard not to think about, as you think about the, the positive side of multilingual adults, the positive side of multilingual students overseas, 
it is hard sometimes to ignore the racial element of the at the attitudes that we have about multilingual and i'm using the royal we not individuals but but the royal we collectively about policies and practices and i think when we talk about what what is systemic racism and what is what is the inequities that present themselves in our systems it's the policies and structures that are in place that skew the system away from those students feeling as though they are valued members of our school community. So uh, I, I appreciate your perspective on that. That really sort of brought some things to uh, a greater, I just have a greater sense of clarity now uh, more than I had before in terms of how that all kind of fits together and, and the ways that that structures need to, to, I, I love that reference to the advantage that so many have being multilingual mm -hmm. and yet we look at them as such a deficit. Yeah, yo, yo, yo puedo hacer esta presentación completamente en español sin problema. And then I can do this. We have to tell our kids it's a superpower to walk out of your schools with more than one language. We should be celebrating that, honoring that at graduation at our school, we had these kids stand up and be, be acknowledged for walking out of our schools bilingual, biliterate. Their diplomas got a gold seal because they were walking out of our schools bilingual, biliterate. We have to change the narrative and in a much more broader sense, right? So yeah, my, uh, my mother who, uh, my father and mother immigrated from Germany once told me and, and said this often that, um, you know, those who speak one language often look down on those who speak two. When I would kind of make fun, as a kid, I would make fun of her accent and yeah. things like that. And she'd say, you know, those those who speak one language often look down on those who speak two. And I, you know, it, it is a regret I have not learning, whether it was my language of, of origin, you know, German. Yeah. I'm, I'm first generation Canadian, but but my parents spoke German. Or, or just the opportunity to learn French or Spanish or another right. language to be able to communicate. It, it is a regret I have yeah. uh, because when I'm overseas and in other countries, I just wish I could communicate with people. And I so right. appreciate their ability yeah. to speak English. No uh, two, two, two questions left uh, as we finish up. And these are questions I ask everyone I have on the podcast. So here's sure. the first one. And you can take this in any direction uh, you wish to go. Educationally speaking, what keeps you up at night? That's a good one. I, I think for me is not using what I have benefited from and the privileges I have to make our system much more equitable, much more powerful, and much more inclusive, right? For me, it's realizing that I've been I've been granted a platform that can influence others and I'm not using it enough, right? Yeah. I think about the book that I would like to write, but then I don't write it. I speak at a place where people say, Luis, that was so inspirational. And then I leave thinking, but is inspiration gonna be enough? So I, I kind of look in the mirror with that one mm -hmm. and ask myself, Am I contributing to a system that denies kids an opportunity by not really kind of investing fully in all the in all the knowledge that I've acquired over the years? Am I doing enough to really be part of a team that is 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 truly helping? Because when that day comes for me to leave Earth, if I if I reflect and say I could have done more, that will be a sad day. Not because I'm dying, but because I could have done more when I was alive. So yeah. that's something that, you know, I just turned 50 that I'm I'm kind of 
kind of looking at what else can I do to really, really help with people like yourself and others really make a dent so that kids that I never meet one day because I will be old and gray and maybe gone can benefit from the small contribution I made. And knowing that I had that opportunity and didn't take advantage of it fully is really scary for me. Well, as the 53-year-old elder statesman of this conversation, <laughs> I'm going to put my junior psychologist hat on and, and yeah. tell you that my two cents will be the fact that you are that reflective and that aware of the question itself means you are doing more than enough mm. uh, because that, that level of awareness and that level of reflection, uh, I think, is something that we all benefit from. And if we, uh, you know, I... I immediately feel it, you know, feel it from you in terms of feeling inspired about that level of self-reflection and the question of, am I doing enough? And, and I absolutely love that. Last Thank question, you. Luis, um, is about success and happiness. And I asked this question, I asked this question of everyone last year during, when I started the podcast, I'm going to continue it uh, as we go along. It's a question I ask everybody, and it's a pretty simple question with maybe not a not so simple answer, but if a random person stopped you on the street and asked you, What's your definition of success? How would you answer them? Hmm. You know, I'm going to I'm going to use what I call a Mattoism because Mike Mattos is one of my 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 best friends and one of my most important mentors and he often describes it as the way that I define it and that is limitless possibilities, you know? That if if kids walk out of our schools and have limitless possibilities in line with what they want to accomplish, that would be a beautiful thing, right? Mm -hmm. um, it's not, it's funny because it's, it's it, you know, people often say, so limitless amount of money. And I'm like, no, you're not getting it. Mm -hmm. you, don't, you don't have to have limitless amount of income to do the things that you're passionate about. If, if I have a nephew who wants to be a really good electrician and that's what makes him happy, to know that we've given him everything in our system that will allow him to go down that path would be phenomenal, right? Would be phenomenal. If that's what's going to make him happy insofar as the kind of life he wants to live, the kind of time he wants to spend with his family. So nothing really deep. I think it's just limitless possibilities for the kids we serve on the path that they choose to take would be my idea of success. Yeah. Limitless possibilities. I think that is, uh, that is a, a wonderful, wonderful way to to yeah. define success for sure. Listeners, you can and absolutely should follow Luis on Twitter. His Twitter handle is at L Cruz Consulting. That's L C R U Z uh, Consulting, and uh, you can follow Luis and, and tap into all of his work, um, the books and the forthcoming books, and all of the workshops and presentations. You certainly can find a lot more information on the SolutionTree.com website uh, and find out about uh, Luis as well. So, um, Luis, I, I you know it was so great to reconnect with you today. Um, Thank you, Tom. Really, thanks thanks for doing this, man. I really appreciate it. Honor to be with you, my friend. Honor to be with you. Thank you yeah. so much. In Assessment Corner this week, I want to talk briefly about rubrics and criteria. Not so much about the content and the structure, but about the creation of rubrics themselves. Now, over the past few weeks, I have found myself in many conversations about creating rubrics, and it became very clear to me in those conversations that the teachers I was working with were overthinking the creation of rubrics. Don't overthink it. 
Now, when I say don't overthink it, I'm clearly emphasizing the over and not the think it. Obviously, I'm not advocating that we just flippantly or mindlessly throw together criteria. We have to think through the aspects of quality and describe them along a gradation that moves from simple to sophisticated. Slapping together a rubric or just downloading a rubric from, you know, Rubistar or Rubicon or Rubrics R Us or whatever without vetting the language to see if it aligns with the language of instruction, that's critical. You've got to vet that. Are the aspects of quality aligned to what we believe or what we've co-created with our students? So, of course, you have to think it through. However, there is a point where we overthink it. And I've experienced individual teachers and groups of teachers who are frozen by analysis paralysis. I mean, for all the right reasons, look, they want to get it right, but getting it right starts to slide into getting it perfect as though the rubric is supposed to be a work of art. Yes, there are some aspects of criteria and rubrics that we have to think through, but we have to all understand there is no such thing as a perfect rubric. Randomly pick any rubric, examine it for long enough, and you're going to find something wrong with it. It's not that hard. The easiest thing to do in our work is to critique someone else's rubric. The hardest thing to do is create your own. So just create the rubric and use it. You'll learn more about the rubric's strengths and that which needs strengthening by actually using the tool. Remember, we're not laminating rubrics. The rubric should have you know, bent corners and coffee stains on them. You should expect to be on version 4.0 in your computer files. Rubrics are living, working documents. Create the criteria and use it with your students. If an edit or a revision emerges, then just edit it or revise it. It's that simple. I think at least part of the issue is that in seeking to create the perfect rubric, we want the rubric to be as all-inclusive and as thorough as possible. So it ends up being, you know, two or three pages, size four font, and paragraphs worth of information. Or worse, bullet points. This is an approach to rubrics that I think is unfavorable. You're not wrong if you do it, but I don't think it's a favorable way to create criteria for these reasons. First, bullet points often end up becoming internal checklists. So you can imagine an aspect of quality within your analytic rubric has six bullet points, right? Each in those isolated boxes. And this can lead to people often saying to me, you know, Tom, what do I do if they have three of the aspects at the exemplary level and three at the proficient level? What do I do? You see, for me, this is far too granular, you know, and it leads me to the next point. We really should think about criteria more holistically. Remember, a rubric is intended to describe quality. Then we examine the student's demonstration of learning and we infer that that demonstration matches that description. So when describing quality, just write one to three sentences, maybe four sentences, whatever, that describe the aspect of quality at each level. Use consistent phrasing so that the quality words jump off the page. And that leads to the next point. Rubrics on their own, no matter how thorough they are, will always be too abstract. We need to use exemplars to bring the rubrics to life. Use examples to show, not tell. Show the students what that brief description means. Without exemplars, your rubric is just a document. Teaching the rubric through student samples that ask your students to consider quality is how they learn to match performance to description. You know, the one to three sentences, maybe four sentences. 
It's fine. Just give it a brief description and help them make the inference. If you start getting into five or six or seven or eight sentences, now it's getting rather lengthy. And again, I don't want you to get locked into the number. I just want you to think about the idea that if the description starts to get too lengthy, you may need to take that aspect of quality and split it into two. Again, this is what I would do. You're not wrong if you do it differently, but I do think there's a downside to the bullet points and the lengthy descriptions. Write your one to three sentences and then use it. Done, right? What is the worst that can happen? The worst that can happen is that you will make a good decision and then through using the rubric, you'll realize there's a better one. And when it comes to building criteria, think it, but don't overthink it. Whatever you create through a thoughtful process will be a good tool to use, a good experience for your students, a good professional exercise at worst. Then, if you realize that it needs adjusting, then adjust it, even mid-year if you have to. Then just let the students know about the subtle changes. Or even better, revise it with them and have them contribute to the revisions. Again, no laminating, no picture frames, no plastic sleeves, this is not a work of art. Well, it can be, but not in the sense that I'm talking about. We're not putting these rubrics in museums, okay? What you need is a succinct description that triggers a vision of what quality looks like. With the proper teaching of criteria through exemplars, the clear vision of quality will come to our mind and our students' minds. There is no straight line between the students' performances and the criteria. You have to make that scoring inference. Rubrics aren't answer keys. They describe quality, and you do the matching. And eventually, our students will do the matching. So don't overthink it. Think it, build it, use it, and revise it if necessary. And then keep using it. The more you use it, and more importantly, the more your students use it, the more your students build it, the more your students revise it, the more you will become comfortable with this whole process and the more your students will become familiar with this whole process as well. You're already assessing your students, and you already have a sense of what quality looks like. Remember, we're not building rubrics to create a document. We build rubrics so performance criteria is clear and transparent to our students. Don't overthink it. Okay, that's all for this week. Remember to follow the podcast on Twitter for updates. That's at Tom Shimmer Pod. You can follow me on Twitter as well, at Tom Shimmer. It's Shimmer Education on Facebook, Tom Shimmer Podcast on Instagram, and Tom Shimmer Podcast on YouTube. Also, please email your questions for Assessment Corner or any suggestions you have for the podcast to TomShimmerPod at gmail.com. Next week, my guest will be Tina Bogren. Tina is a fellow Solution Tree colleague and the host of the Self-Care for Educators podcast, and that is exactly what we're going to focus on next week. Please subscribe, rate, and review the podcast, especially on Apple Podcasts, of course. And if you like what you hear, please spread the word about the podcast to your friends and colleagues and on social media. I'd really appreciate that. Have a great week, everyone.